I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. As more robots are available in the market, we are seeing the different ways in which humans can interact with them. Some people think robots are alive. They even feel bad when a Roomba gets stuck. Other people find robots that look a lot like humans scary. Kate Darling, research specialist at the MIT Media Lab, explains the different types of human-robot interactions. We also talk about how the design of the robot affects how it's perceived and the role of the person's culture. At the end, we talked about questions that lawmakers will need to address in this space. To support the show, you can write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. To learn more about the topics of the shows, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Kate Darling, research specialist at the MIT Media Lab, is joining us today. Kate, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thanks for having me. You're interested in how technology intersects with society, especially in human-robot interaction. What are the different types of human-robot interaction? Well, I'm, I'm interested in all types, but the type that I'm most interested in is when people interact with robots that are designed to be very lifelike and interact with people on a social level. So uh, not so much a Roomba vacuum cleaner, but more a robot that has a face or eyes or tries to talk to you or interact with you using emotional cues. Those are the types of interactions that I'm interested in. When you mention robots that have a face and eyes, are you referring to robots that look like something that we're familiar with, for example, another human, or just in general, a face and eyes? I mean, so I'm generally referring to a category that we call social robots, and they come in many different forms. So some of them look like humans. Those tend to be actually the least effective ones because there tends to be something creepy about <laughs> interacting with a robot that's too close to something that you're familiar with. Um, because we, we can never quite get it right with the technology. So there's this kind of mismatch in expectations of how the thing behaves and how you're expecting it to behave. But, you know, social robots can have all sorts of different forms, and some of them have eyes, some of them don't. We draw on a lot of animation expertise to create them, or specifically the roboticists I work with at MIT, they work with animators to create compelling characters. It can be, you know, a blob that has some sort of expressive movement or face that people will automatically kind of treat as a social actor or as a living thing rather than a device. And the first type of robots that you mentioned, the more human-looking robots, and you mentioned the word creepy, I've seen on the news a lot of these robots, especially in Japan, more, more in Asia, where they're developing more lifelike robots, Does this have to do with cultural differences where they accepted more? It might be. I mean, people in Western society are trying to develop humanoid robots too. I think generally humans have this fascination with trying to recreate ourselves. I, like, I think that's pretty universal. Um, but it does seem to be that some, for example, Asian countries 
are more comfortable with the idea of robots that mimic life. And that might be because of a background in, in the Shinto religion, where rather than distinguishing between things that have a soul, like we say that, you know, humans and maybe animals have a soul, but objects are not alive. They view objects as having a soul as well. So that might explain a cultural difference in a more willingness to kind of accept lifelike robots and to, you know, develop them. But I feel like the cultural differences are often overstated because we often do the same types of things here as well. Is there a way to measure the effectiveness of a human-robot interaction or aspects that we can look at? So there's a body of research called Human-Robot Interaction, HRI, and it's, it's actually um, based on an earlier body of research called Human-Computer Interaction, which looked at um, the ways that people will treat even just a computer like a social actor rather than a device. And in human-robot interaction, there have been a lot of studies looking at different ways of, you know, measuring the engagement that people have, measuring people's willingness to suspend their disbelief and treat a robot like it's alive. There are a bunch of different ways to do that. And one of the ones that I've been very fascinated with is um, empathy. So looking at whether people <laughs> will empathize with a robot that is being treated violently, even though they know that it's not actually being hurt or feeling any pain. And that's just, you know, one example for a way to show that people actually treat these robots like living things, even though they know that they're machines. And I saw that you also mentioned people give Roombas names and they feel bad for them if they get stuck in the house. Why does this happen? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. So we generally have this tendency to anthropomorphize anything, really. This is to project you know, our humanity onto other entities. We do this from a very early age, and we do this kind of to, to relate to other entities, to non-humans, and make sense of them. But, you know, people will project faces onto all sorts of things. People will project emotions onto animals that may or may not actually be there. So we generally have this tendency. And then what robots do is they combine physicality and movement in a way that really, really lends itself to this projection. Because we, our brains seem to be biologically hardwired to perceive any movement in our physical space that looks autonomous, to perceive that as something that is with intent. So people will anthropomorphize robots, you know, even more strongly than a stuffed animal because it's moving around in a compelling way. And, and you see it even with the very simple robots, like you mentioned, the Roomba, which is just, you know, a circle that moves around the floor. And yet just the fact that it's moving around on its own is enough to make people, you know, like you said, feel bad for it when it gets stuck somewhere, which I think is pretty funny. And what are some design decisions that can be made and the implications in perception of the robot? Well, it's interesting because right now, you know, social robots are increasingly being developed. So people are trying to intentionally design robots that do this, that make you treat it like a social actor and make you want to talk to it or empathize with it or pet it. Um, because there's some really great use cases in health and education for this technology, working with children, working with the elderly using robots as a replacement for animal therapy. And so, but the design, it's really interesting to watch people try and figure out how to design these robots because 
like I mentioned earlier, if you make it too close to something that someone is familiar with, like if you just try and replicate a cat as a robot, that's, <laughs> that doesn't work as well as if you try and create something that's a little less familiar but still has familiar aspects, if that makes sense. So fic fictional animals or even just, you know, the group that I work with at the Media Lab has a robot that's just, it's just kind of a round circle and it has different colors and it kind of has eyes. But really, they like, if you do too much, if you try and, you know, make expressive eyebrows and like do hands and, and make a really detailed face, if you go too far, then it breaks the illusion because it sets up expectations that we can't yet fulfill with the technology. So with the design that you choose, you're marking the expectation. Like you said, if it looks like a cat, you expect it to behave like a cat. Yeah, and when it doesn't, it's kind of disappointing and you're like, oh, it's just it's just a machine. In one talk that you gave, you show the Boston Dynamics robot that looks like four legs. I don't know what the name of this robot is. Yeah, it's called Spot. In this video, people that worked on this robot, they want to show how stable it is and they start kicking it. And this trigger some bad responses that even the people for ethical treatment of animals were called and they got involved in this. Can you explain why this happened? I think that was such a great thing that happened. This was a couple years ago. Boston Dynamics, which I think is still owned by Google, um, they make these very biologically inspired but very mechanical looking kind of military robots. And this one was modeled kind of after a dog and so it had four legs and they named it Spot which is a dog name and then when they released the video introducing it like you said they kick it to show how stable it is and it kind of it stays upright but it skids around on all four legs trying to scramble trying to stay upright uh, which you know it's a really cool piece of technology that it can do that but watching it just made people you know, it reminded people of someone kicking a dog. So they started expressing some discomfort at watching it. And I'm not sure that the people for the ethical treatment of animals wanted to get involved, but they were just getting so many phone calls from reporters that they had to, you know, issue a statement. And, and their statement was basically, you know, we're not going to worry about this because it's not a real dog. Um, but they also said that it kind of makes sense that people would find the idea of this behavior inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinated me for a long time. You know, if you can really mimic something that's in pain and it causes people discomfort to watch that, then it might not matter at some point whether the thing actually feels pain or not. It might matter that, you know, <laughs> kicking it anyway might actually desensitize people to that behavior or, you know, just normalizing that might actually have an effect on how we treat living things. Do you think eventually we're going to have an organism analogous to the PETA for robots? <laughs> I'm sure the, the animal rights people won't be happy about that because we're certainly not anywhere near developing a robot that can experience pain and suffering. So it would be a very different reason for wanting to protect the robots from harm. And, and it's, it would be to protect ourselves in essence. But I could see that happening. Earlier, you mentioned then one of the measurements that you're interested in is empathy. And you also mentioned these robot seals for the elderly. 
what is the objective of these robot seals? I think these seals are really interesting. They, um, they're baby seals, which again is a brilliant design decision because it's not a cat or something that you've ever held in your arms. It's enough removed that you can kind of pretend it's a real baby seal. They're very, very cute and they, they respond to your touch and they give you the sense of nurturing something. And they use them in nursing homes and with dementia patients. And it works because it's actually really nice for people whose life has kind of been reduced to being taken care of by others to have this thing that they that gives them the sense of caring for it. Some people think that that's creepy. I actually think that it's a really good use of the technology because it replaces animal therapy where we can't use real animals. And it's been used as an alternative to medication for calming people down. So I actually think that it improves people's lives. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty cool project. And these robot seals are effective at triggering an emotional reaction and emotional connection. There is a dark side to this, not with the robot seals, but for other robots, where we can potentially have emotional manipulation. In what ways can this be seen? It's important to remember that even though we treat these robots kind of like animals, they're made by companies and companies don't always have the same <laughs> incentives as, you know, public interest. Companies like to make money. So, you know, if you're creating emotional relationships between people and these what are essentially devices, then you could see companies or governments or anyone really using that to kind of to, to for example, get more personal data out of people than they would otherwise willingly just put into a database or you could get them to maybe buy products and services and it's it's a little bit concerning to me because a lot of the robots that I see being developed um, that that create this emotional connection are for children and for elderly so kind of vulnerable parts of the population and it would be you know I think a consumer protection issue if companies tried to start exploiting that relationship. And one way could be if the robot is saying, if I get the upgrade, which costs $10, I can do all these other things, triggering the consumer to spend more? Or what's an example? Yeah, I mean, so that's an example of something that, you know, we would have to decide whether that's okay or not. Because in some sense, you know, we already have stuff like that. We have, you know, in-app purchases in, on our iPhones and in our apps and stuff. But if the device is really trying to kind of exploit an emotional connection in a way that we think is unfair to people or to the people that they're trying to exploit, we might want to crack down on that. So for example, if your child's language teaching robot is teaching your child you know, a vocabulary that's skewed towards products and services, you might say, hey, that goes too far because my kid is too young to understand difference it just views this robot as its friend it's going to listen to anything it says or if you if you're trying to like sell products to the elderly who can't really defend themselves because they don't really understand how it works or what's going on I think that would be a problem and we try and make that distinction so for example we let companies do all sorts of psychological tricks like uh, making the purchase button bigger online or using specific colors, but we allow that because we think that we still have some control over it. It's when we feel like we don't really have control over it, like in subliminal advertising, for example, which is forbidden in a lot of places, that's where we draw a line. And I think that we could reach that point with robots where we feel like we're being 
manipulated on an emotional, biological level enough that we would want to crack down on companies exploiting that. What did you mean by subliminal advertising? At some point, they figured out that if you, for example, took a picture of a Coca-Cola and you put it into a movie so that it's just, you know, one picture out of a hundred and you don't see it, you're watching the movie like normal and so you don't see the Coke, but uh, subliminally it registers in your mind that this picture of Coke has popped up again and again. And they showed that more people would buy Coke during the break if you did that. Mm -hmm. Like if you put these hidden images of Coke in a movie and, you know, people were not happy about that. So that's forbidden. You're not allowed to advertise that way. Mm -hmm. So it's when we feel like we have no control over what the companies are doing with our emotions and our brains. That's, I think, when we draw the line. Is that why they got rid of the movie breaks? Yeah, maybe. So how can consumer protection laws step in in this area? Oh, so someone else has actually done some work on this. Um, there's a legal scholar named Woody Hartzog. Uh, he's, I think he's moving to Northeastern in Boston, actually. Um, he's a professor. He does a lot of work on privacy and robots. And he's written a fantastic paper about how at least American consumer protection law could address some of these issues. Um, I'm not sure about how other countries would handle it, but I think European law is also similar. Robots that are built can be associated with a story. We see this a lot in toys, for example, Hatchimals, they come with the story. How can this affect our interaction with robots? I think it just lends to this social actor projection. We did a little study a while back where we introduced these little robots to people either as just objects or we gave them a, a name and a little story. And then we asked people to hit them with um, mallets and smash them. And we found that people hesitate a little more to hit it if it has a story and a name. And we found that people particularly hesitate more with the story and the name if they're people who have a lot of natural tendencies for empathy. So according to those results and according to, you know, what I see and <laughs> the Hatchimals is a good example. I think, you know, they're on to the fact that giving something a, a backstory is automatically going to make people value it more or treat it like something that, you know, or become more emotionally involved or engaged. Treated like a living object. Yeah, if the story is, is about its life, probably. You wrote an article titled Why Google's Personality Patent is Not Good for Robotics. What is the personality patent? It's interesting that they would patent that because I, like, from what I can tell, they're not working on social robotics at all. Although they might be secretly, who knows. But yeah, having being able to put different personalities into, into different robots or into the same robot. And I, I think my concern with that article was mainly that The patent was very broad and covered, you know, a lot of stuff that people are already doing. There are already robots that, that try and do this. So that was my concern with, with that patent specifically. One interesting example that I saw in this article was that it said you could potentially ask it, be mom, and based on the data, it could just take this mom personality. Yeah, that's funny. I don't know how well that would work. It might. I'd be really interested in seeing it because I don't know if you know the new Furbies. 
No, I had the original one. What's the difference? So the difference is exactly this, that it has five different personalities that it switches in between, which is, which is kind of interesting. I don't find it very compelling. <laughs> I think that you know, having one device with a certain personality and another device with a different personality is more compelling than just having kind of the physical device be a shell for different personalities. But that's just my intuition. I would love to see studies on that. And this system, the Google's personality patent, uses what it's called cloud robotics. Mm -hmm. You explain what cloud robotics means? Yeah, it's not actually a term that I've heard so much anymore because it's so, um, it's just become kind of normal. Robots need a lot of processing power. They have to process a lot of data that they collect in order to, you know, act on, act on it. And uh, it's just much easier instead of having all of that data processing happen on the robot to have the robot, you know, online on the internet and to offload that to, you know, the cloud. Okay. <laughs> so that's basically cloud robotics. And the promise of cloud robotics is also that if you're uploading all of that stuff anyway, then robots could learn from each other's experiences and all connect to the same cloud. So that's, of course, interesting. And especially with developments in artificial intelligence that really go in the direction of learning systems that can learn, but the, the way that they learn is by just collecting massive amounts of data. Um, it's interesting, the thought of having shared data sets where other systems can access that data. Do you think we need to work on educating people about the implication of sharing our data? For example, when I saw this personality patent project, I can see what's powering it. They have access to our email data, to our conversation data. So I was actually a little shocked when I saw this patent. Yeah, but I don't know. Do you think there needs to be more education to the people? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a huge problem and it's been a problem ever since, you know, the internet started taking off. And I think it's going to become even more of a problem because now we'll, we'll have the internet of things and we'll have robots and all of these devices coming into intimate areas of our lives and they need to collect data to function. And we have an incentive to give them data because we want them to work better. So it's kind of like, Facebook on steroids. Like you have an incentive to share information with Facebook because, you know, you can communicate with your friends that way. And this is like, you know, you're going to be wanting to share all sorts of data. And so I do think that we need to be very cautious of the privacy implications, that consumers need to be educated, but also that there need to be some checks and balances on the companies. I think European privacy law makes a lot of mistakes, but at least they try really hard. And in the US, we need to try a little harder. In the U.S., it can sometimes be perceived as a hassle, like, oh, the European market, difficult to work with. At least is the perspective I get when reading the news and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It is really hard to strike that balance. And sometimes I think they've not made great decisions. But in general, the reason that it's such a hassle is because they care about people's privacy. Mm -hmm. And we don't in the U.S., don't as much. And I think that, you know, companies win in this market, but the general public, I think there's a cost to them. What are some difficult questions that lawmakers will need to address? In the near term, I think, so there's a question of, and this, is, this goes beyond social robotics, but I think a big issue is autonomous weapon systems, which some people are trying to get banned. 
I think the privacy issue is is huge given that all of these new technologies, like I said, collect so much personal data. I think that there are some questions around robots and labor markets. I'm not one of the people who's like, oh, the robots are going to take all the jobs in the next five years. I don't think that's true. But I do think that technology is disrupting and it's going to continue to disrupt some jobs that, you know, where people can't as easily just be retrained or do something else. So um, I think that governments have a responsibility to try and study that and manage it and help out. Mm-hmm. And then the, the social aspects. Um, I would like to see governments starting to think about some of the ways that social robots can manipulate people or change people's behavior. It's a little bit early for that, but we are starting to see these systems. Like I, I have an Amazon Alexa at home and <laughs> You know, it's it's starting to get real um, for a lot of people. So I think we should be thinking about it sooner rather than later. And in the labor markets, robots, I think Bill Gates was proposing a tax also for robots because there's a employee tax, right? Yeah. I mean, so I, I think that what he's talking about is a very real problem, which is that the more that you can automate things, the less you know taxes you get through employees. But his solution sounds so simple and easy, but I don't think it is because it's really hard to define what a robot is <laughs> and and how you would tax it. I mean, basically, we'd have to go back and tax all of Bill Gates' software products for you know all of the all of the employment loss that they created. I do think that something needs to happen. I'm not sure a tax is the right way to go. And the last aspect that you mentioned was the social aspect. And I just want to ask you in 10 to 20 years, if you would think robots can potentially replace humans as marriage companions. <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't think robots can replace humans. I do think that people can develop emotional relationships to robots that are very strong. So it wouldn't surprise me if people wanted to marry a robot in 20 years or or even now. <laughs> But like I don't think that robots will ever be like a good kind of general replacement for humans. I think humans are always going to stay more challenging and more interesting to interact with. And so maybe a robot is right for some people, but for most people I think we're going to want that authenticity. Well, Kate, thank you for coming on the show. This was a very interesting talk. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you. <laughs>